Genesis 12. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Father, I pray that tonight you would guide our minds, guide our hearts, and that you would lead us and give to us your faith so that we can believe, so that we can receive your grace, so that we can receive your gifts. Um, God, Show us Jesus in a new way tonight. Open our eyes to see him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our fifth part in a 31-part series called History, Finding Our Place in God's Story. And um, we are taking basically 31 of the most important events in the Bible and we're constructing them in order so that we can get the basic shape of the Bible story so that we can see what God is up to throughout history and in the present and in the future and have an idea of where we're going and what God's plan and his purpose is. So we're taking, we're now in the fifth part of this and we're actually entering into tonight the third act if you guys remember on your bookmarks, the outline we have, there's six acts in God's story. We're moving already into the third act. And um, this is where God initiates restoration. And we'll explain that in a second. But I think at this point, what I've been realizing as we've been going through this, is that Christianity is not something we add to life. Christianity is life. Notice what the sermon series is called. It's called Finding Our Place in God's Story, not Finding God's Place in My Story. That's often, I think, sometimes how we look at life. It's like my story, my life, and I'm going to find a place for God in it. When God really wants to be the one controlling and crafting his story and putting you into his story. In short, what Christianity is, is it's giving God the pen and allowing him to master our life. To make it into his story. See, what happened at the fall is man decided, it's not God's story, it's my story. So he took the pen from God's hand and began to craft his own story. But that's the beautiful thing about Christianity. See, what happens in Christianity is we give the pen back to God and we say, it's your story. Put me in your story. Let me find my place there. So that's why I say Christianity isn't just something we add to life as if it's our story and we're just throwing God in it. It is life. We've been exiled from God's presence and in the perfect peace of Eden. We were moved out of that when we said, give me the pen, God. And Christianity brings us back to Eden. Jesus brings us back there. So we're moving back to what we were always meant to be. Back to what we were created for. So it's not as if you're living life and just, we're, now I'm a Christian, throwing it all in, let's keep going. It's making a complete U-turn and going back to where 
you've never been, but you were created to be. So this is, this is as old as dirt, <laughs> your faith. Literally, as old as creation itself. There's nothing brand new. It's not like you're joining some new clique, some new um, cult, some new religion. You're going to the first and most perfect state that God made possible. So, um, that's it. It's his story. We're finding our place in it. And here's part five. So, what have we seen so far? We have seen this. First, creation. God's a mighty king, and like kings of all times, just their word is enough power to get things done. His word alone is accomplishing creation. It's overcoming the chaotic waters that have surrounded the earth, and he's moving them out just with his word, and he's establishing a kingdom which we call creation. And so now he's a king. He made little under kings, little image bearers we call man and woman. And he entrusted the kingdom to their care so that they would. And then chapter 2 he saw he wanted them to cultivate the creation, meaning to, to, to let it grow, to discover all the potentials of creation, and to expand the garden by cultivating it till it grew to the ends of the earth so that the entire globe was his temple. It was man's mission to push God's presence to the edges of the world. But rather than cultivating creation to fill it with God's glory, man took creation and began to cultivate it for his glory. He began to discover things about the garden and ways that he could use it for himself. And so then man was kicked out of Eden and we saw what happened after that. God sent the flood because man began to cultivate the world in such a way that it was getting more and more corrupt and corrupt and corrupt. And so God sent the flood to wash that all away. And we looked at how the, when the waters rose, it was the decreation of the earth. Because remember how in Genesis 1, God moved the waters and brought land. But in the flood, he moved the land and brought waters. We were going back to Genesis 1. And then... At the end of the flood, it says that the Spirit of God blew upon the waters, just like in Genesis 1, and the waters receded, and Adam, excuse me, Noah, who was a second Adam, came out of the ark, and he's moved into a new creation, and we all expected, yay, he's going to go back into the garden, everything's going to be happy again. But Noah sinned just like Adam sinned, in a garden, a vineyard, by fruit, ended up naked, and ended up cursing things. Same way that Adam fell. And so we were quickly disappointed, and we learned very quickly, you cannot save yourself. The problem with this earth is not creation. It's your corruption here. And so Noah had a lot of promise, a new start. But Noah couldn't bring himself back to Eden. And so if you guys feel like... Life will be better if you could just have a better family situation, the right kind of friends, better looks. If you think that it's circumstances that is to blame for the way your life is, Noah showed us that that's not the case. God gave the earth a clean slate and he still fell. The curse and the fall has seeped deep into our heart, into the recesses where no flood water, no clean start can, can reach that. Only God can get in there and reach that. So we learned that man can't get back to Eden. 
God is going to have to send somebody to do it for us. So, now we come to the third act. And we see that God, seeing this mess, decides, okay, it's time that I initiate redemption, restoration. I'm going to bring man back to Eden. So he does this with a man named Abraham. And that's where we are in Genesis chapter 12. So what we've seen so far, creation, man's rebellion, and now we come to the third stage, third act, restoration. All initiated by God. He, this is his move now. Where he's going to bring man back to Eden, starting with Abraham. So this is how we see it all start. I think what my goal here is, is that we understand what was in God's mind here with, the, with Abraham who became Israel, right? And Israel became Jesus came through Israel. What's God's mind here with Abraham? And then what, what does it matter to us? Because um, the Bible, the New Testament, talks about us being sons of Abraham. How do we become that? And then we'll find our way to get back to Eden. Find our way to be restored back to that relational wholeness with God, what we call peace. All right. So, God chose Abraham. Now, what happened in chapter 11? Noah gets drunk, remember, he gets off the ark, he gets drunk, he's naked, he curses his son, then his kids grow up, and they decide, we're going to continue to rebel against God. And so they erect this tower, and rather than realizing that we're made in the image of God, the men at the Tower of Babel decided, we're going to make God in our image. God is going to come down to us. We're going to create a a little, it was called a ziggurat, which God is supposed to live in, and he's going to be just like us. We're going to give him food there. They were demeaning God into their own image, something that every single religion has done in history. And so they there, um, see, remember in Eden, when Adam and Eve took the fruit, Satan's thing was, you will be like God. So they wanted to be God. Well, at the Tower of Babel, they wanted to make God like man. And so they went for that, and as they erected their little cult, their little civilization and their culture around the Tower of Babel, what you literally had is another people building another culture around another tree of knowledge, the wrong kind of tree. And so we see this all going worse and worse, corruption again. And then God comes down, ironically, like they wanted, and he, he confuses their language and disperses them to the ends of the earth. Man just goes everywhere. And so it's in that exiled, cursed situation that God calls one man out of the nations, Abraham, and says, All right, this is a mess. But I'm choosing this guy, Abraham, to restore humanity. It's all coming through this guy. So, he pulls Abraham and gives him this promise that we read here in Genesis 12. Now, when God called Abraham, this wasn't an easy thing for Abraham. Abraham's father has just died. And according to the custom of the culture, Abraham's supposed to receive a massive inheritance. His life is set here. He's got land, he's got house, everything that dad had is coming to him. And God comes to Abraham and asks him to leave that behind. 
I know you're just getting an inheritance from your dad, but leave it behind because I have an inheritance for you. Okay, so you're about to inherit $3 million from your dead uncle or something. And God says, just give it all away. I'll give you something else. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Let me see. What is it? Is it better? Is it a better deal for me? I have no idea. And so Abraham, by faith, Hebrews 11 tells us, total step of faith. He says, all right. He gives up everything he was to inherit from his father and leaves it all behind and goes out with nothing more than what he can carry with his family to a land he's never seen with a language he probably doesn't even know to a people he's never met. He just goes. And you can imagine, what is everybody saying when Abraham's leaving his city? Uh, Abraham, what are you doing? Like, you have this inheritance, you're just giving it away. I know, I know. God told me that he's going to give me something over here. Oh, really? What is it? you have a picture of this place? Is it, like, bigger? Do you have more gold there? More servants? Like, what's the deal? Uh, I don't really know. Oh, where is it? Uh, I haven't figured that out yet. Oh, he's just an idiot. That's like what you would conclude. You would have absolutely no respect for Abraham. Except think, obviously this inheritance on earth means nothing to him. And he goes, total faith that God has something absolutely better for him. So that's, that's Abraham's call. Um, total step of faith. And we're going to bring that up in a couple minutes. And that's, that's very important that you guys realize what he gave up to answer God's promise to him in Genesis 12. Now, so Abraham goes off in faith, and as he does so, picture this, okay? We just talked about God scattering the exiled and cursed nations, and he's pulling one man out of it and bringing him to a certain land. What you see here is Abraham is another Adam. It's like God starting over again. He's a new Adam, we call it. Look, look at, notice the similarities between Adam and Abraham. First, when Adam was formed, God gave Adam a land called Eden, and he put him in Eden. Well, here's Abraham, and he's calling him out saying, Abraham, I have a land for you and your descendants, so come, a new Adam. Um, also, Abraham, all these A words, drive me crazy. Adam, in Genesis 1.28, was told, be fruitful and multiply, right? Subdue the earth and fill it with your little image God bearers, God's image bearers. Well, and to Abraham, when he calls him to his land, he says, you're going to become a great nation. In short, you're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you're going to fill this land, just like Adam was to do. And then Adam, in Genesis 3.8, it says that God walked with man in the garden. Well, in Genesis 17.1, God appears before Abraham and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me. So both Adam and Abraham were those who walked with, in God's presence. So we have a, a new Adam being called out of the cursed nations and being pulled out to a new land. Which, and this will, this will shape the way we look at the rest of the Old Testament. This land that God is calling Abraham to, is a new Eden. A new Adam being called to a new Eden. I will give you guys the details on that later as we get to these parts of the Bible. But certain verses such as Exodus chapter 15, um, Numbers chapter 24, and you can even look right here at Genesis 13, 
in verse 10, they all describe the promised land that Abraham was to go to as a garden of Eden. 13 verse 10, for example, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. The garden of the Lord, like, like Eden. So we have here, God is initiating man's restoration. He's calling an exodus out of exile and bringing him back to the perfect place where he's meant to be. Peace with God in Eden. So here's the new Adam being called to a new Eden. We're starting over. Restoration initiated. Now, you guys know that Abraham becomes, his little offspring become the nation of Israel, right? The land that he's in is Canaan. It's called Israel today. Um, and, and from this nation, they, they build their capital in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes to this nation and he dies for them. And Jesus resurrects from the dead and goes into heaven. And we're waiting now for his promise to return. This whole thing I talked about is the restoration process. But God begins our, our return to Eden, our restoration. He begins it with Abraham, with a single man. Because he needs to build a nation to bring a Messiah to. So that the Messiah can bring us all back to himself. So we're looking at the very beginning here. And almost to the very end of the Bible, we're just looking at this initiated restoration. is going to be carrying itself all the way through to the end. So this is a big project that God has on hand. And he all starts it with Abraham. So. This is very mm, obvious when you look at the five words in verses 1 through 3, chapter 12. Five words pop up in this section. It's the word bless or blessing. That word. Five times God says, I'm going to bless you. You will be a blessing. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. Bless, 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 bless. This is in opposition to the curse that we found. Curse, 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 curse. All the way up to this point. Do you guys remember when um, Adam and Eve took from the tree of knowledge rather than the tree of life, and they basically said, like, we're good enough to be our own gods, we can do what we want, and then God had to exile them out of the garden, and there was a threefold curse, right? There was Genesis 3.15, the curse that the righteous and the wicked will be in conflict, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent will be fighting against each other, right? And we have that even up to this day. Then there was the the gender conflict where God promised that, um, (laughs) good promise God, uh, that man and woman have their relational problems and the woman is going to have much difficulty in childbearing. And then there was a third conflict which was the land. God said the land's going to bring forth thorns and thistles and by the sweat of your brow you're going to make your food. Basically a lot of work for a little bit of return. That is the threefold. It's the the um, righteous evil conflict, the gender conflict, and then the land conflict. Well, when God calls Abraham, he reverses those three curses. Not yet, but he promises their reversal. He touches on all three of those topics. The conflict of the good and evil is going to be triumphed in verse 3 is the promise. It says that I will bless you. 
uh, bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. See, there you go. That's the tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. There's going to be that, like, whoever curses you, I'm going to curse. Whoever blesses you, I'm going to bless. There's going to be that friction, that opposition. But in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Because from Abraham's offspring is going to come the one that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 who's going to crush the head of the serpent and end the enmity forever. So God addresses that's going to end soon through you, Abraham. What about the gender conflict? Well, verse 2, God tells Abraham that he's going to have a nation come out of him. Now, the gender conflict was that woman is going to have great difficulty in childbearing. Sarah knows this firsthand, Abraham's wife, because Sarah is barren. She's having great difficulty in her childbearing process. But if God's promising a nation, how's this going to happen with a barren wife? Ah, God's going to reverse the barrenness, reverse that part of the curse in their family, and she's going to have babies. And then there's the um, the land conflict, and in verse 1, and also down in verse 7, which we did not read, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So the cursed land, God's giving him a land that's going to answer the cursed land. It's going to be a restored land one day. So we see here, in the calling of Abraham, a new Adam coming to a new Eden, the promises of restoration are going to happen. Now, all these promises here are going to be fulfilled in Israel. Through the Old Testament, partially. They're going to be completely fulfilled in one named Jesus. And we're still waiting for some of that full fulfillment of these promises. Example, the land being like Eden. We're still waiting for that whole restoration to happen. But God's made the promise, and it's going to happen. So, um, alright, let's look at... What is, what is the point of this calling? Um, I told you that five times it says here the word blessed, right? Look at verse 2. I'll make of you a great nation, and I will bless, number one, you and make your name great, so that you will be a, what? Blessing, second. And I will, verse 3, bless, third, those who bless for you. <laughs> this sounds really weird, I bet. And him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in... You, all the families of the earth, shall be blessed five times. Why? Why five? Because, go to Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said, Genesis 3.14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. Now go to verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because... You have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now go to 4.11. And now you, God talking to Cain, and now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Now go to 5.29. We've seen the word cursed three times so far. 5.29. Um, this man named Lamech is now prophesying about Noah's birth. He says, um, and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord God has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work. And now the fifth time the word cursed is used is in 925. Uh, Noah saying to his son Ham, after he looked at his nakedness and told his brothers, Cursed be Canaan. That's... 
Every time the word curse is used between Genesis 3 and 11. Five times. And so in Genesis 12, we have this brand new start. New Adam, new Eden. This is the point that God's saying to him. If the curse was man's exile from my presence in Eden, then what a blessing is, it's the opposite of a curse. Because there's five of those, now there's five of these blessings. So the blessing's the opposite of the curse. So if the curse was exile, then the blessing is exodus. It's, it's return, it's restoration to Eden. That is God's point in calling Abraham. God calls Abraham to initiate his restoration plan for all of humanity to come back to Eden by blessing the cursed world. It's a cursed planet. It's the fall. We've seen nothing but corruption up to this point. And now God's saying, I'm going to start to bring blessing to my cursed earth and trickle it in through Abraham. And Abraham's going to multiply. And this nation is going to spread my blessing to the ends of the earth. And then humanity will be restored. But. Abraham fails. Shocker. Failure after failure after failure. The nation of Israel did not do the job it was given to do. They came to the promised land. It's supposed to be a new Eden. They began to multiply. They're supposed to cultivate it to expand God's glory, to spread the kingdom across the world. But what happened? They didn't create culture. Culture corrupted them. They began to worship Baal. They began to take the culture around them and to borrow it. And slowly but surely, they began not to multiply, to subdue the earth and to fill it. They began to shrink and to shrink and to shrink until God, like he did to Adam, exiled them out of the new Eden. They were kicked out. But that's why Jesus comes. The offspring of Abraham. Verse 3 said that he's going to bless every family, that's nation, all the nations of the earth. And that's in Jesus. So... For us, these promises to Abraham that there's going to become a there's going to be a blessing to reverse the curse, that we're going to be invited to restoration. These promises apply directly to us through Jesus, because Jesus from Abraham became the worldwide Savior, and He's offering restoration to all of us. Jesus is a new Adam, just like Abraham was. It's, um, Romans 5.18 talks about how Adam, through one sinful act, cursed us. But Jesus, through one obedient act, blessed us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, Paul says, As in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. He's, com- he's intentionally comparing Christ to Adam because Christ is the new Adam. Just like Abraham was. But also, furthermore, Paul later says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, he calls Jesus not just a new Adam, he calls Jesus the final Adam. Why? Because Noah, the new Adam, failed. Abraham, the new Adam, failed. But Jesus, the newest Adam, succeeds through the resurrection to restore us to Eden. By the way, footnote here. Um, I, w- I actually just thought of this like yesterday or two days ago. Is it significant to you that when Jesus was resurrected, 
um, the tomb was in a garden. And John goes out of the way to make sure that we understand that Mary thought that Jesus was the gardener. Through his resurrection, he secured our restoration to Eden. But anyways, close that footnote. Some of you guys know have been hearing those things, and you're going to chew on that. So um, that's cool. So Jesus is the final Adam, just like Abraham. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Um, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The New Testament opens letting you know that Jesus is picking up what Abraham and Israel failed to do. Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here he is. He's part of the blessing that's going to bless all the nations of the earth. Third, Jesus is our hope of restoration. Um, Jesus sent his disciples to bless the nations. That's what he told Abraham to do. In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Jesus took his disciples and before he ascended into heaven, he sent them to bless the nations. He told them, Matthew 28 verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... This is where I'm going to say, this is the blessing of restoration. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what they had in Eden. I'm with you always. And Jesus says, go, be a blessing to the nations and let them know that I will be with you always for those who take me by faith. So Jesus picks up Abraham's mission. Fourth, um, he is the source of all blessing. Ephesians 1.3, probably my third favorite verse of all time. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Key word there, blessed us every spiritual blessing. Bless, bless. Is it conceivable that what Paul's saying is that in Jesus, the blessings of the Abrahamic promises are fulfilled for us in Jesus? See, in, in Abraham, we see in chapter 12, it said a couple times, I will bless, you will be a blessing, all future blessings, right? But in Jesus, Paul says, you have been blessed. So what was potential in Abraham is actually fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled Abraham's mission, and he's given us the blessings of being restored with God. So... I think you guys see that Jesus is carrying on Abraham's mission here of restoration. Um, how, do we, how do we actually enter into this? Because it says the blessings for all the nations. It's not just for Israel. It's not just the offspring of Abraham. It's for all. How do we enter into this? The answer is by faith in Jesus. I'm going to read you guys four verses that make this abundantly clear in the New Testament. The first is Romans 4, verse 13. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, not just of Canaan, of the world, hence my New Eden topic, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So the promise of Abraham is coming through faith. It gets clearer. Galatians 3.7 Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. 
not those who are Jewish. Because Abraham's our national forefather. No, those of faith, put your faith in Jesus. Jesus meshes you into the Abrahamic family. You become Israel. Spiritual Israel, given. But that's what it's, by faith, you become sons of Abraham. All these promises are your inheritance, just like they were promised to him. Galatians 3.9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along, blessed, keyword, blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Galatians 3.29. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise, Genesis 12. You will be restored to Eden. You have an inheritance. That's what God initiated in Abraham. And that's what he continued to do in Jesus Christ. So that you don't have to be a Jew. You just have to be Christian. And you inherit the promises of Abraham. Full restoration into Eden. Hallelujah. Okay, so that's how it's done, through faith. But I must close with this very important distinction. (laughs) What kind of faith? The pulpit pew survey, I think it's actually called the pew survey, whatever, one of those, is estimated that 80% of Americans profess Jesus as the Son of God and that he rose from the dead, the components of the gospel, right? Okay, there's a problem here. 80%. Obviously, faith is not just the acceptance of who God is in the heart. It would be nice. Lots of people in this room have done that. But that's not faith. The faith that makes you a son of Abraham, an inheritor of the restoration of Eden, is the faith that Abraham demonstrated for us. Abraham showed us three specific acts of faith that we are called to imitate in Romans chapter 4. We're called to have an, an Abrahamic type of faith. If faith was just the acceptance of God in my heart, then I think that 80% of America is going to have Eden. But it's not If Abraham, I mean, think about this, think. If Abraham just said, oh, you have an inheritance for me in that new land, and I go there to get, okay, cool. I believe that, and he just stays and takes his father's inheritance and does nothing. What what, what does that accomplish? I I believe it in the heart. No, that's not faith. Faith takes God at his word, and then it thrusts his body into action. Faith molds the decisions. It changes your actions. That is Abrahamic faith. So, the first example of Abrahamic faith is this. Abraham, give up your earthly inheritance to take what I'm going to give you. You've never seen it. You don't even know what it is. And actually, I'm not going to tell you this yet, but you're actually not even going to inherit it in your lifetime. It's going to be something way like in the resurrection days. And Abraham does it. He so believes that God's word is trustworthy and that there is a better inheritance for him, even though he can't see it, touch it, or is ever going to get it yet. He so believes it that he's willing to spit upon his father's inheritance, be ridiculed by all those who say, what are you thinking, and move forward into Canaan and to take that. And all he ever bought was one tomb for his wife. That's all he ever owned. Lesson, faith, willingly surrenders 
this earth's possessions because it recognizes a greater inheritance to come. So when my dad gives up his six-digit income to help start a church plant that everyone says he's stupid for doing, what is that announcing to the world? It is announcing that my faith is legitimate and I see that God has a greater inheritance than my six-digit income has. That's faith. Anything that you give up. We talked about this on Wednesday a little bit about the patient inheritance of the possessions of Christ. Um, Living that life to say that this is not my life. I have an inheritance that's on this earth yet to come. And I don't need to, to, to grab the corrupted culture of this world. I'm going to give up whatever I need to in order to expand God's kingdom. That's faith. That's the action of believing. The second main event in Abraham's life wasn't just when he gave up his inheritance to go get an inheritance he never actually got yet. It was the promise that he's going to have a son. Sarah doesn't have the ability, look, we've been married, uh, let's see, we're like 75, 80 right now. We've married a long time, God, I know she can't have babies. I know that. I hate to be the doctor here, but she can't. Well, and clearly he didn't think so because Abraham went into his wife's maidservant, you remember, and had a baby through her and said, yay, offspring, I'm going to have a nation now. But God shows up in the very next chapter and says, Abraham, that's not what I had in mind. I meant literally Sarah is going to have a baby. Sarah? The dead woman? I mean, like, womb dead? Like, like there's no flower coming off those stems in her? <laughs> it's withered? Um, she? Yes. <laughs> she? And after God tells that to Abraham, he never again has sex with another woman to try to create a nation. He patiently waits for God's promises. And see, that's faith for the Christian. God promises you that he has everything you need in him. And so what the Christian does is whether you can see that or not, whether you've been burned by the church before or whatever, you believe those promises are there. So you're no longer going into the Hagar's or the other maidservants or the other councils of the world to get things accomplished. You're going straight to God. You're patient. Even if it takes 25 years like it took for Abraham to get the promise of God, you're patiently pursuing his promises, not the perverted pleasures of this world. And that was what Abraham learned. He started doing the perverted pleasures, but then he learned, God said, no, no, I really mean my promise. Abraham believed, and he did not do that again. Some people claim they have faith, but they're still living in the perverted pleasures of the world that Abraham cut off and said, I'm not doing that anymore. But you still are. I'm I'm not pointing at you. I'm just, someone here is. Faith cuts it off. Faith moves forward. Third example of Abraham's faith was when he, um, the worst, was when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac. That was the kid that he waited for. The kid that all these promises in chapter 12 are to come through. And then God said, all right, Sacrifice him to me now. Here he is. <laughs> Burn him. And Abraham could have reasoned like I would have. Well, God, you promised that through Isaac, your my offspring shall be. I can't do that. See, if I kill Isaac, then I'm actually going to hinder your promises from happening. I would reason like that. But, but faith does this. It says, no. 
I believe God said, my offspring's coming through Isaac. I also believe God's telling me to burn him. I don't know how it's going to work. I'm not God. I don't have to figure that out. I don't have to go around the tree of knowledge and think I know everything. I'm just going to say, okay, God, I trust you. Faith is going to do what you say. And Hebrews 11 says that Abraham did it because he believed that God is able to deliver Isaac from the dead if necessary. So he did. He sacrificed Isaac. And right before the knife killed his son, God stopped him and said, now I know you have faith. Christian, what have you been hesitating to do? What have you been arguing with God about? Faith does not argue and reason with God. Faith says, I take you at your word and my life shows that I've accepted your word in my heart. And so here I go. Hurt or not, I believe that you are resurrecting type of power to bring my son back to the dead, to bring my baby into my wife's womb that I I can't do. All these things. I believe your power. So I can cut these things off of my life. I can radically take risks with my life for other people. Because God's made promises and I trust them. And my life proves that. So, we are, rest, we are restored to Eden. Because of the promises that God initiated through Abraham to bless the cursed world. And Jesus becomes our means of attaining these promises. Faith in Him. The kind of faith I'm talking about. The radical sacrificing, trusting God's power despite reason type of faith. Action, the belief coming out in action. That kind of faith meshes you with Jesus who is a descendant of Abraham. Who is an inheritor of the restoration of Eden. This world will become Eden once again. And those who live Abraham's faith will be there. Those who don't aren't going to be there. So Father, I pray that you restore our souls in your son tonight. This world is a miserable experience, Father, apart from you. We're we're exiles, we're wandering in a wilderness that we're trying to create into gardens, and we can't. I pray that you restore us, bring us back to your presence in Jesus. I, I pray that those who are looking for a change in circumstances, or are trying to write their own stories, will give up the pen. And would give up the effort and find new life in Christ. Um, Lord, we accept him, but give us faith to live for him. Give us faith that proves that you have indeed done a work in our hearts. Let Eden blossom in us tonight. And we look forward to when you come and literally restore this earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.